Good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today, I'm going to talk about ways in which organizations are getting hacked and really bluntly how easy it is to prevent those hacks from happening. You know, there's all of this um, brouhaha that I hear about all the time about all these different hacks happening. And every time I look at these things, I'm actually rather disappointed about how successful these hacks are because I know about the mechanisms in order to prevent the hacks. And so many of these preventions are ridiculously easy to do. They are free. They are usually, or not, maybe not usually, in a significant percentage of the time, they are a one-time configuration. I'll give you a great example of this. You look at something like Microsoft's recommended NTLM lockdown. Okay, well, that's just a little project that you do, and you do this NTLM lockdown, and there it is. Now, you have mitigated that threat in your particular environment, because when you do that type of a project, you would, of course, utilize a mechanism whereby that configuration is going to be consistently enforced and distributed throughout your environment. So as long as all the rest of the pieces which need to be there are in place, such as you have network connectivity, which you know you're going to have, and that you have things like domain-joined computers that are actually fully patched and not compromised in some other way, well, you, you certainly know at that point in time that you can have uh, con confidence in the fact that your NTLM lockdown settings are actually getting distributed to your computers, right? That that, that is a policy enforcement mechanism. So cost-wise, I don't know, five hours maybe. Not It's not a lot of work. It certainly is uh, not a lot of work for somebody who knows what they're doing in order to implement it. For me, it's like an hour and a half to do it because I've done it a whole bunch of times. And that assumes that the, the environment doesn't have an exchange server in it. And if it has an exchange server and it's going to take a little bit longer to do it. But um, that's you know, a very small project, tremendous benefit from doing NTLM lockdown. It doesn't require any ongoing costs. And the knowledge of the fact that this needed to be done in environments is obvious, ubiquitous, and we've known about this for a good 20 years. I mean, we're talking about publicly available security how-to documentation that's been telling people for 20 years you needed to do this. So then when an organization suffers a breach because they didn't do something that was attainable, affordable, and well-known, that's really, really disappointing. And what it really brings to light is that they have the wrong people in charge of making the IT decisions at that organization. And this is unfortunately something that I see as a vastly widespread, widespread problem. There's a lot of organizations that try to get way too much done with internal IT. Now, I would make the argument that you look at a company like SC Johnson and uh, they have the resources uh, and they do have the ability to attract and retain highly qualified talent and put them in a position to be able to execute 
you know, long-term comprehensive security strategy and do so effectively. You know, so in that case, are you good enough with your on-site full-time employees internal IT from a security strategy? Well, I would say in the in the case of SC Johnson, yes, and uh, and I happen to know a number of the pe- number of the people over there that have that responsibility, and I would most definitely deem them highly qualified to achieve that objective. When you start looking in the small to medium business space, let's just say it's 500 users and under, there are there is seems to be way too much heavy reliance upon internal IT. And I don't really care how super wonderful you think your internal IT is. The question is, have you evaluated and assessed where the gaps are? And none of this is anything personal against internal IT. What it really comes down to is, how is it a realistic expectation to think that your internal IT, that you're paying 80, 90,000, you know, $80,000 to $90,000 a year, uh, how are they supposed to be expected to be security and remediation experts? How can they possibly even have the time to research these things? Where would they test it? You know, their job is like server maintenance and desktop support and, you know, application support. Really, where are they going to manufacture the time and the resources to do it? Because so I can tell you flat out that in order for someone to development test solutions for security hardening and remediation, it requires the access and maintenance of an extensive, sophisticated environment that is separate from your business production network. Now, can you accomplish that with a test lab? No, I don't think so not in a million years. And this is me speaking from 25 years of experience in the industry. It's impossible to create a test lab that will be able to replicate or simulate in a reasonable enough fashion your production environment in order to assess the impact of a particular security hardening measure. So one of the things that we do here at QPC as security experts, as security architects, is we do maintain an extensive, highly hardened, sophisticated, complicated environment where when we do security hardening, all that we're doing is we're breaking it for ourselves, And breaking functionality in order to put in hardening of security is really not that big of a deal from our perspective because we know how to deal with it, right? So the fact that we're maintaining this highly complicated uh, environment with a lot of moving parts and pieces enables us to simulate the impact that might occur to a real-world client production environment. Now, if you look at most other consulting firms, I don't really think they're doing that. I'm not going to say that nobody's doing that. But I think the vast majority of companies are not doing that. And that's because usually IT consulting firms are not run, not owned and not run by security architects. In many cases, they're run by sales and marketing business folks, and they may not understand the necessity or the value of having that kind of an environment. And they may be wholly uncomfortable having their client service delivery engineering staff also have 
management authority over internal assets. And I say that because I know for fact that there are several companies in the local area where that is the case. So they will utilize a single internal IT guy to supposedly harden their internal environment and then their actual engineering service delivery staff have no access to a test lab. Uh, they certainly have no access to a non-client real-world production environment to be able to test configurations. So what this translates to is in the vast majority of circumstances, the security hardening just gets, doesn't get done because there's no way to, for them to test whether or not doing A, B, or C is going to break something. Uh, most customers are not actually wanting you to secure and harden their environment, which is also disappointing because fundamentally they don't want to get hacked, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, internal IT service delivery at most of these companies is not the best and the brightest. You know, they're, they're taking their best and their brightest and they're putting them on client service delivery projects, not, you know, internal management of internal assets. And I've seen way too many walls be constructed between those teams. So, you know, all of those are basically roadblocks for IT services companies to gain the vetted confidence that they need in order to be able to deploy hardened security configurations to their client environments. So that is a massive source of the gap. Now, another massive source of the gap that exists is, again, your full-time internal IT, not only should it not even be a realistic expectation that that's inside of their wheelhouse, because bluntly, if that was inside of their wheelhouse, they would probably make more money than the CEO of the company. That's the kind of money that those kinds of people get. So, you know, you're, as a small to medium business, never going to be able to afford to hire one of those people as a full-time employee at your company. So if you're not utilizing the external resources of a uh, VCIO, who is also a security architect, to help you run your IT department, then I think you're vastly missing out. This is a huge gap that I see happening all the time. Now, let's get into something much more interestingly specific, because again, some of these kind of more generalized concepts are difficult to understand, but it's very easy to understand very, very specific examples. So there was an article that was published on September 2nd that was talking about complex new attacks that target managed service providers, and these attacks hide in Google traffic. So this article talks about how a lot of the malware that they are seeing is being distributed via Google's DNS over HTTPS service. And um, also that it is, uh, by the way, this is uh, an article that is about the work of uh, Huntress Labs, which is a security research firm. So this is based upon their work. And uh, they, this Huntress Labs, they also determined that a lot of these hacks, this malware was getting delivered via Google hosted content. Now, some Google hosted content could simply be um, publicly 
available or open content that's sitting out there in somebody's Google Drive and then it's linked up someplace. And uh, it could be Google AdWords. It could be uh, Google Advertisements, Google Analytics. It could be any flavor of all kinds of Google things. And the there are certain elements where I have a vast difference of opinion from the CEO of Huntress Labs on this particular topic, because the CEO of Huntress Labs said basically two things. Uh, first off, this, you know, you got Google's DNS over HTTPS and the bad guys are delivering malware uh, through that. And uh, she says, Google is a site that's not going to be blocked. You can't just turn that off for your workers. Oh, I'm sorry. It wasn't she. It was John Hammond, the senior research research, senior security researcher at Huntress Labs. The CEO said something else later. But um, <clears throat> point is, is that this claim is you you can't block Google. Well, that's not accurate. And that you can't block this DNS over HTTPS service. again not accurate. So let's talk about how you might deal with these security threats. So number one, blocking DNS over HTTPS is not exclusively a Google problem. It's also a Firefox problem. It's also a problem by uh, a variety of web browsers out there. Now, if your organization has a savvy strategy in place, they will probably have more than one browser because the reality is we just can't get through life with a single browser. And that's because you can't control the development of every single website that you interact with. And some websites are designed to work with Chrome and some are designed to work with Firefox, etc. So the inevitable reality is we all have to have multiple um, web browsers. And then from an IT management perspective, you have to be prepared to manage those browsers and those settings. Now, Google and Mozilla, who's the company that makes Firefox, have actually done a decent job of finally making group policy objects and administrative templates available for download. There used to be some stuff where you'd have to kind of hack it up on a um, you know, private basis, but now they're actually putting together these GPOs themselves, thank God for this, and then you can download these and deploy those through GPO Central Store and configure them. So. If you have Active Directory and you have Active Directory domain joined computers, or you simply know how to do like local policy modifications, then you can easily tell both of those browsers by policy to not use DNS over HTTPS. Now there's another layer of security you can do here, which is your mandatory network layer security appliance, which of course you've already got. So the question is, do you have it configured correctly? Are you blocking DNS over HTTPS? Well, if you aren't, I would argue that you should be because if you're allowing DNS queries and DNS, supposedly DNS queries, and I say supposedly because sometimes it's actually something other than DNS queries that are going uh, over port 53, uh, that are that are smelling and looking like DNS queries, but in the case of DNS over HTTPS, the vast majority of our organizations out there, and certainly virtually the entire residential space, maybe 99% of the residential space, and probably more than 90% of businesses out there, do not use deep packet inspection. 
which means they aren't proxying HTTPS at all. So there could be a massive payload of malware and all kinds of other evil things that are getting delivered over that channel and you basically have no visibility into it whatsoever. So now it's been years that the uh, security researchers at Verizon have been publishing the fact that data exfiltration has been happening over the DNS channel. So for years now, we've known that we needed to be using DNS proxies. And the perimeter security appliance vendors have done a great job of making DNS proxying a viable feature in their products. Furthermore, most of them have an upstream DNS filtration service that is quite effective. So if it's a DNS filtration service and if it's a DNS proxy, then you have to actually be sending DNS packets. You can't be sending DNS packets encapsulated in HTTPS or you've completely bypassed the proxy. So we know there's problems here via this channel. What's the solution? Again, very simple. Go get some free group policy objects and go implement them in GPO Central Store and go and tell those browsers to not use DNS over HTTPS. And then secondarily, go block DNS over HTTPS in an application control mechanism. Okay, problem solved. You're not getting hacked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, let's address the second question of quote google is a site that's not going to be blocked well <laughs> i've been blocking google very effectively for years you know one of the most heinous things that i have found is you know google thinks that it is more important than every sovereign government on this planet it does google by many people including many employees who have decided to separate themselves willingly from that company have perceived that the behaviors of the company at large are quote evil and in fact they have perceived that the company decided to violate its original mission which was literally don't be evil so the world has had quite an incentive for quite some time to have a higher level of awareness over what Google was up to. And then they needed to decide to what degree are you going to interact with Google? What are you going to use them to do? Do you trust them as a company, etc.? You know, do you want them? Do you want to give them your money? All of these things. You know, and these are these are all questions that you may want to ask yourself and and decide upon. But let's just say your organization has decided to be a G Suite company then you're going to most definitely have issues with that, uh, with filtering Google traffic. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that Google does use certificate pinning. So a lot of things that Google does are not only subdomains in reality of Google.com, so that's one problem, but they also are using certificate pinning, which is fundamentally broken when you try to actually DPI the, the, the traffic. So then if a Google advertisement is hacked and delivering malware, how do you protect yourself against that? Well, you'd have to actually have web content 
filtering in place that would just basically block all advertisements. And you would also have to have some support from executive management to manage the expectations of the marketing department and get the marketing department to um, potentially be utilizing less tiered security computers for certain activities versus the computers that they're supposed to be utilizing for their secure functions. Because if you're going to utilize technology that requires Google Analytics, then and you have a company policy that says Google Analytics is a problem from security reason wise <clears throat> and from a privacy tracking and I could go on and on about why it's a problem. But then you have a business requirement that says, yeah, but our marketing people need to actually be able to track the advertisements. Okay. Then do the marketing people need to do that from what is deemed to be their secure corporate workstation? Well, no, probably not. Maybe they need to have another computer that they go to that's on the guest network and they do those activities from there. You know, so this requires quite a bit in terms of having executive management buy-in for a real security strategy, but also somebody internally as an asset available to the organization. Notice I didn't say they had to be an employee, but they have to be an asset that to the organization that has the ability to articulate the you know happy medium how do we make the business do what the business needs to do without compromising security for everybody else you know how do you how do you gain access to that person that has the ability to know what the security problem is what is the risk articulate that risk invent a solution around how do we make it so that certain elements of the business can do what they need to do without compromising everybody's security. And see, this is again, one of those areas where I say, this is just an unrealistic expectation to expect that internal IT is gonna be able to handle that. Because what internal IT sees is that Google Analytics is blocked. And then our marketing department is screaming over the fact that they can't track their Google AdWords. And this website just doesn't work without Google, Google Analytics. And then they got an email from the CEO that says, you got to make it so that marketing can do their job. Oh. Okay. And so what is the reaction that IT has? Well, they go and allow Google Analytics. So they just keep opening the barn door. And this is just an example. This kind of thing happens all the time. When internal IT is, does when the people that you have managing the security posture and the security strategy of the organization are not actually security architects. When you're expecting that your internal IT, IT team is going to be able to do that by themselves, and I say by themselves because you know they very well could be in a co-managed IT situation where you have a partnership with an external security architect, and that can work. But if you're expecting that internal IT all by themselves is going to be able to figure this out, or you tell them, don't call our external consultants because they're too expensive. You need to quote, just make it work yourself. Then what ultimately is happening is they're getting pressured to just keep opening the barn door and they keep opening the barn door and opening it up and opening it up because they're getting pressured 
to make it so that people can do whatever people need to do. And they don't have the skill set to figure out how to go get the little tiny precision screwdriver approach. All they know how to do is open the barn door because that's all the, the training that they have. So, you know, these are really the problems that causes organizations in general to get breached. They've got the wrong security model. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple more interesting, really, really fascinatingly interesting examples. And I think they're fascinatingly interesting because it's kind of like a giant cod slapping you in the head. It's so obvious. Like, go take a five-pound cod and then smack yourself in the head with it. It's like, it's like that kind of obvious. Okay, so for the last 20 years, Microsoft has published literally step-by-step how-to documentation and guidance on what's called a, a tiered security access model. It doesn't even require anything as crazy as Red Forest because, you know, Red Forest makes really good sense for organizations that have more than 5,000 users. But Red Forest is probably a bridge too far for smaller organizations. However, any organization of any size, even three users, can do a tiered access security model. This has been well known, well published in the public domain of knowledge for more than 20 years. Yet, I see this principle being violated ubiquitously, including ubiquitously, okay, maybe not. Well, yes, I think 99% is ubiquitous, okay? <laughs> so, um, very, I, I literally can only name maybe two IT consulting companies that I know of that really correctly use privileged admin workstation and correctly use tiered access security model. Now, I know that there's other companies that are out there, but they are fairly rare. And it's because it's hard. It's, uh, it's more time consuming. It is more expensive to have that level of complexity in, but you're, you're not going to get breached. And when you have customers that are commodity shoppers and they're like, oh, well, you're, you know, this much more than the competitor, what they're not actually asking is the real question about, which is, well, let's start from the very beginning, which is what are you doing to your environment that's going to secure it to make sure that you as the vendor are never going to be the source of us getting hacked. So how much you pay isn't even relevant until you've established that fact. So when you look at this publicly available information, the tiered access security model, one of the things that it says is that domain admins should never actually log into any computer other than a domain controller. And you should have policies in place that restrict domain admins from being able to log on to anything other than domain controller. Then there should be a separate security admin for member servers, possibly for Hyper-V hosts. Uh, and then if you're going to have workstation admins, then that should be a separate security tier. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have one employee that has all three levels of access, but they can't have all three levels of access with the same account. And they can't be doing these administrative functions from the computer that they are browsing the internet on and watching YouTube and doing their email and all of this stuff 
if the expectation is that that IT person is not going to be the source of the breach. So if your IT team comes to you and says, we need to have separate physical workstations, we need to have two computers for each of us because we're going to run a physical privileged admin workstation model. Don't say to them, oh, well, no, that's too expensive. I, we, you can't possibly have two computers on your desk. Because when you say that type of a stuff, you're fundamentally making it impossible for them to follow privileged admin workstation because jump boxes don't really work until you start implementing that with a multi-factor authentication privileged access and identity management solution which is again up there in the realm of you've got to be about a 5,000 user company in order to be able to afford the complexity of something like that so if the cost profiles simply have a separate computer that's on a separate VLAN for privileged admin workstations that has a separate web access security control rule set and separate level micro segmentation ACLs and that that person is utilizing different accounts to do different administrative functions and they're following written policies and procedures. That's pretty actually low total cost of ownership compared to a lot of other options and it drastically reduces your ability to get hacked. So that's it where I'll leave you with today is some thoughts on actually how easy it is to not get hacked, which is kind of the news that people aren't telling you most of the time, but you've got to know what you're doing. And I think that's really where the gap is. So as always, hope you enjoyed the show.